I'd like to say as we begin this morning how much uh, we appreciate the invitation to be here. Me and my family certainly uh, enjoy always coming to Denton and, and seeing each of you. Uh, looking forward to being able to spend the day with you, eat some lunch with you and that sort of thing. Hopefully though, uh, we can study God's portion or a portion of God's word this morning and glean some things hopefully that can help us in our Christian walk. Um, up on the screen, you can see the title of the lesson is Walking New Paths. And this is to help us in overcoming sin. You may be here this morning and you may be a Christian. You may have been a Christian for a long time. You may be a Christian in a short time. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. All of us at one time or another, though, have to deal with sin and have to deal with overcoming sin in our life. Now, before we came to Christ, we recognized that we lived a life where we were on a path of sin, a sinful path. And that's kind of the life that we were leading, a life outside of Christ where we didn't think about having to live righteously and having to change certain things about ourselves. But when we make a commitment to come to Christ, we make a commitment to repent, to change, to live a different kind of a life. And that means that we've got to be able to overcome some of the habits and sinful things that we've developed over time. And maybe, though, even if we've been in the church and been a Christian for several years, we still find ourselves dealing with sin from time to time. You see, because when we become a Christian, we're baptized and we come out of that water and we've been given new life. That doesn't mean immediately that we're perfect. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. That doesn't mean we're not tempted. That doesn't mean that we're better than anybody else. In fact, it may mean that we're even more of a target to Satan, to the wicked one that tries to make us fail because he knows that we're trying to do something better. And so it may mean that we have a harder path to walk to live that righteous kind of Christian life that God desires from us. So this morning, we're going to look at some things, hopefully, that can help us in overcoming sin in our life. And I want to use the illustration of, of and, and have us think about the path that we're walking in life. Because the scripture teaches us to consider or to ponder the path that our feet are taking us. If you look at the scripture in Proverbs chapter 4, and Yancey, I'm not getting it up there in the back uh, for some reason. If you could, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. If you look at Proverbs 4, 26, it says, Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. And this passage tells us to ponder the path that our feet is taking us on. So I ask you this morning, what path are you walking? Are you walking the righteous Christian path? Are you walking the Christian path, though you find yourself stumbling off from time to time? Or are you walking the path that you know in and of yourself that you've not been living the Christian life? And maybe you've wandered off onto a sinful path and you've turned back to some of those worldly things. I want to ask you to ponder that this morning. And we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 7 for a story here about a young man that did not ponder the path of his feet like he should have. And he ended up walking a path that he shouldn't have gone down. In Proverbs chapter 7, starting in verse 6, it says... For at the window of my house, I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths, a young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. And he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. Now, I want us to notice something. It's here from the viewpoint of a man looking out of his window and he sees this young man and this young man is walking and he says, I see this young man and he is going the way to her corner, to her house there in verse eight. He's walking a particular path and the guy that's looking out the window is saying, I see this guy and I see where he's going. I see what he's about to encounter. And as he's walking that path, he comes to a corner where there's a harlot at that corner waiting to tempt him with sexual sin. 
And she does, and she flatters him, and she, and she flirts with him. And verse 13 says, she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me this day. Have I paid my vows? Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face. I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man is not at home, he has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, and he will come home at the day appointed. And so this young man that is walking down this particular path that leads him to this corner where there's this temptress that's tempting him to commit sin with her, she's married, she has a husband who's gone, and she begins to, to flatter him with, with her lips. She tempts him. And what is his reaction to that temptation once he gets there and he's in the midst of that strong temptation? It says, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till a dart strike through his liver and as a bird hasted to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. So once this young man is there and he's in the midst of this powerful, strong temptation, guess what he does? He yields to it and he goes in with her and they commit adultery and they commit sin before God together and recognize, though, from the vantage point of this man that's watching this happen and watching this occur from his window, he saw the path that this young man was walking from the beginning. And he knew that if he continued on that path, he was going to be led into a situation where that temptation was strong. And I want us to consider the path that we're walking this morning, because if we can change the path before we ever get into that situation where the temptation's strong, we can avoid it altogether. And we can help to avoid those situations that cause us to fail. This young man walked right into the snare. And once he was there, it was too strong and he yielded to that temptation and he sinned before God. Verse 24 says, Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. And this is a warning to others specifically here about sexual sin and about the the problems that that kind of sin can entail and the consequences that can come from that. But really, it's true with all sin. That when we walk down that sinful path and we allow ourselves to be put into that snare and we fail and we sin against God, especially if we turn that into, we don't repent from that and be able to overcome that, but we turn that into a habitual sin and a problem where we're living in sin and we're not living in righteousness, we've put ourselves right in the snare of Satan. And as this scripture illustrates, that is the way to hell. That is the way to death. And we know as Christians that our eternity is very important. And considering our path to eternity is important because there's one of two destinations that we'll take in the eternal, in the eternal realm. And that's either life and heaven or that's death, destruction and hell. And certainly this morning, I want each and every one of you to be walking that path that leads to eternal life. That path that's the straight and narrow. That path that leads to glory. And so what path are you walking today? Galatians 4 verse 9 says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You know, that's what sin does. It, it, it enslaves us. It makes us slaves. Now, when we think about slavery... We ought to have all of those negative things about slavery come into our mind, right? Because we know slavery is bad and slavery is wrong and we never want to treat another human being that way. Slavery is bad, right? 
But when we choose to walk that sinful path, we are making ourselves slaves to Satan and slaves to sin. In fact, if you've ever been in an addictive type of sin or habitual type of sin, you know how that enslavement happens. And you know that once you get caught in that trap, it becomes very difficult to get out. Because your mind or your body or whatever part of yourself is given into that passion or that lust or that desire becomes dependent or reliant upon that for pleasure or for satisfaction. And then when you begin to try to withdraw yourself and get back on the right path, your body or your mind or whatever it is that you're addicted to cries out, cries out for needing that satisfaction. And what ends up happening a lot of times is we turn right back to it and we go back to the sin and we commit it again. And then we... We tell ourselves, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be better. And then the next day, because we've addicted ourselves to something, we end up failing again. And we say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to stop. The problem is we're relying on ourselves and we're relying on our own willpower to stop and to change. And what we really need to do is incorporate what God has taught us in Scripture to help us to overcome that sin. And this scripture illustrates the fact that why would you want to go back? If you've been saved by the blood of Christ and you've been made free from sin, why do you want to be a slave again? Sin enslaves. We've been made free by Christ. Let's not go back willingly into the chains of slavery. Maybe this morning as you're considering the path that you're on, you realize maybe you're on the path of poor judgment. I hope that each one of you this morning can say, I'm on the path of righteousness and none of this applies to me. I hope that that's the case. But a lot of times in various situations in our life, sometimes we'll stumble onto a different path. Maybe it's the path of poor judgment. Maybe you walk through life and you realize that without intending to do wrong, you've just made some silly choices. You've made some unwise decisions that have had some consequences for you. You know, there's a story in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 of something that that David and the children of Israel did that was just that situation. They didn't intend to sin against against God. In fact, what they wanted to do here was they wanted to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. The ark had been taken by a a neighboring uh, people for some time. They had gotten it back, and then it had sat at this guy's house for 20 years, and David comes to the people and he says, look, let's go get the ark, and let's bring it back to Jerusalem. And all the people heard what David said, and they said, this is a great idea. Look at verse 7. It says, they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. So they go to this guy's house, Abinadab, who's had the ark for about 20 years, and they load it up onto a cart, and they start trekking towards Jerusalem. And they're happy. They're trying to do something good to bring the ark of God back. It says that Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart, and David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals and with trumpets. Now recognize how the people were responding and how David was responding to this. They're playing instruments and they're singing. They're not intentionally trying to do anything wrong here. They're trying to do something good. And they all think it's a grand idea. You go on, it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Kite, and Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark. And there he died before God. Now, they're trekking down the road, and they've got this ark on the cart. And all of a sudden, the oxen stumble when they get to this particular place. And Uzzah, who's one of the guys driving the cart, he reaches out and he he holds on to the ark to try to keep it from falling. And God strikes him dead on the spot. You know, this worried David and this this confused David. And David didn't know why in the world God would strike Uzzah down. Because here they are, they're all playing their instruments, they're singing, they're dancing, they're happy about what they're trying to do to serve God. They think they're making a good decision. And all of a sudden, this guy dies before God. And David has to go search and try to figure out why in the world God would do this. And he does. He does figure that out. 
And in 1 Chronicles 15, 13, this was his conclusion. He said, For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. You know what David's conclusion was? Before we brought this ark back, we didn't seek God. We didn't consider what God would want us to do. We didn't consider how God would want us to do it. We just came up with an idea that we thought was good and we carried it out our way. And then God struck a guy dead because of it. You see, in the Old Testament law, God had been very specific about how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be transported. It wasn't supposed to be transported on a cart. It was supposed to be carried by the priest on their shoulders. Not only that, but you were never, ever, ever supposed to touch the Ark. And so you can look at it really in one way and say God already had mercy on them when they stuck it on the cart. And God didn't do anything with that breach. But when Uzzah went and he touched it, God had had enough. And he struck Uzzah dead because of it. David said, we didn't seek God in it. Maybe you're here this morning and you can see a series of decisions that you've made in life, not to intentionally do wrong, not to intentionally sin, but maybe you recognize afterwards that that just wasn't a smart decision. I didn't seek God in it. Maybe I was thinking more about my own motivation, my own wants and my own desires rather than what God wanted. And that's what David and the people did here. And there was consequences for that. We think about this in terms of maybe getting a job offer that takes us somewhere away from church. On the one hand, you go, yeah, but, you know, the money's great and, you know, my family needs this and and all of that. And you can make all of those, those, put all those pros in there. But the negative might be there's no church. There's no family of God. There's no all. So how do you make that decision? Well, maybe you go with the, well, my family needs this and you move and you do that. And it doesn't necessarily mean in every situation that's the wrong decision. But if you're really looking to try to make the best, wisest decision, you're going to consider what is more important for God. And God would want us to be focusing on the spiritual aspect of our life before the physical. And if there's other ways that we can provide a living for our family while maintaining the proper type of church family and the proper type of worship and things that God has called us to do, then certainly that's what God would desire from us. God wants us to make good, wise decisions. But you may be here this morning and you're on that path of poor judgment. Maybe you're here and you're on the path of casual sin. Maybe you don't feel like the little sins here and there are such a big deal. You know, you're not, you're not addicted to anything. You're not an alcoholic. You're not addicted to drugs or anything else. You know, you feel like eh, a little bit, a little lie here or there is not a big deal. A little curse word here or there, not a big deal. The little things don't matter so much. You know, that's a very human perspective towards sin. As we categorize sin a lot of times and we say, well, this is, you know, murder, that's a huge sin. That's a really bad sin. But a little lie, not so big of a deal. But that's really not how God views sin. But sometimes we think about it as just being those little decisions that really aren't going to be that big of a deal. Well, there's a story in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. And you remember this story probably about the man who had these two sons. And one of those sons comes and demands an inheritance. We look at verse 11, it says, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them came to his father or said to his father, Father, give me a portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. Now, if you remember the rest of this story, it's a great story of redemption. 
the prodigal son. He comes to himself. He goes back to his father's house prepared to say, Dad, I'm sorry. You know, I don't even want to be your son. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Just make me a servant. You know, I'll work just as long as I can have some food, work for some food. Well, he never gets that chance. He goes home and his father's waiting and watching for him. And he runs out and he embraces him and kills the fatted calf and rejoices that his son has come home. And it's a great story. But I want us to consider a series of decisions that this, that this young man has made in this story that led to the consequence of wanting to eat pig slop. Because that's where he found himself. In a situation with no money, with no friends, where he wanted to eat pig food. And how do you get there? How do you get there from being in a good family that obviously had resources because his father had the money and the inheritance to give him and had plenty of food and all of that to the spot where you've got nobody and nothing. And I believe that happens because you compromise on a few little things and you make a couple of bad decisions and if you pile a couple of bad decisions on top of a couple more bad decisions, it can lead to a very bad place. Notice, first of all, he goes to his father before the time. You know, normally an inheritance is saved for what? When somebody dies and that inheritance is passed on after death. The younger son goes to his father while his father's still alive and says, give me the portion, give me my inheritance now, I want it. His father, you know, you could look into what's the father's motivation for going ahead and giving it to him. Well, I don't know. Maybe he wanted him to, to learn his lesson and to go hit rock bottom. And he certainly did. But he takes the inheritance before it was time. And then he goes and he takes a journey away from his father, away from his family, away from anybody that can hold him accountable. And he goes into this faraway country and then he begins living a riotous life. He begins living the party life. And he lives it up. And he has all the worldly pleasures and he drinks and he hangs out with with immoral people and does immoral things and lives that party lifestyle. And then pretty soon his money all dries up. And then he knows he's got to feed himself So he goes and he gets a job feeding pigs. But even that's not enough to actually feed him. And once again, we find him there wanting to eat that slop. You see, if that younger son had not been impatient and wanted his inheritance before it was time, he never would have then wasted it all. He never then would have lived that party life, gotten destitute and gotten hungry and starving and all those things. But he made a series of decisions. Is it smart to go move off to a place, we already kind of mentioned that, where you're not held accountable by anybody? You know, we've got church family for a reason, to help us, to encourage us, to exhort us. If I leave and I go somewhere where I've got nobody that's there to hold me accountable, it's going to be way easier for me to sin because nobody's going to know. Nobody's around. Nobody's there to see that. And so if we're around each other, we can help each other to stay on the right path. So maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that you've been compromising on those little decisions. It maybe don't seem that big of a deal. You can look at it from the son's point of view and go, well, you know, he had the inheritance coming to him at some point. Not that big of a deal. You know, he has got the right to move wherever he wants to move. You know, well, you know, he partied it up a little too much, but, eh, you know, what's the harm? Well, the harm is you end up in a spot where you have to come to yourself and say, I'd be better off as a servant in my father's house than where I am now. And maybe we need to come to ourselves today and realize That casual sin is a problem. Song of Solomon 2 verse 15 says, Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have have tender grapes. You know, this passage is talking about a vineyard and talking about little foxes. Little animal that a fox is can get into that vineyard and can destroy the vineyard. Can destroy all of those grapes. Just that little animal. And a little compromise can destroy our spiritual life. A little sin here and a little sin there can be detrimental to us into our relationship with Christ. 
Maybe, though, you're here this morning and you're walking the path of habitual sin. Maybe it's not just those little sins. Maybe you know that you're living an improper lifestyle. Maybe you know that you're an alcoholic and you know that being drunk's wrong and it's a sin. Maybe you're addicted to drugs and you know that that's wrong. Maybe you're addicted to pornography and you know that that's wrong. Maybe you're addicted to fornication or sexual relationships outside of marriage and you know that that's wrong. Maybe you're on the path of habitual sin that you can't seem to get out of, that you're stuck in and it's a cycle that keeps repeating over and over and over for you. I want you to know that you're not the only one that has ever been caught in that type of a sin situation if that's what you're in. And there are ways that the Scripture tells us to help us to get out of those situations and to change the path that we're on. But there's a story of a man, you know the man, Judas Iscariot from Scripture, I'm sure, as the man that betrayed Jesus, right? But did you know that Judas, the entire time that he was following Jesus for those three years, listening to Jesus preach, watching Jesus perform those miracles, Judas had a problem. He had a sin problem, a habitual sin that constantly was getting to him that he was feeding. And that was lust of money or thievery. Judas was a thief. And in fact, Judas, the entire time that he was following Jesus around for those three years, held the bag of money for the group. He was the, the bookkeeper. He was the finance guy. He had the money. And unfortunately, the scripture tells us in uh, John chapter 12, verse 3 through 6, that Judas was not um, being very uh, upright about keeping the money for the group and that he actually was a thief. John, of course, is looking at this after the fact when he's writing this. So of course, the other disciples didn't know that Judas was doing this at the time. But listen to what John says in chapter 12, verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Okay, so here you have Judas, and, and there's this ointment that's being used to anoint the feet of Jesus. And he says, hey, you know, we could have sold that ointment. We would have had all sorts of money to, to give to the poor. And John, of course, looking at this after the fact is going, this guy didn't care anything about the poor. Because we know now that he actually was stealing the whole time. And he wanted that ointment to be sold so that there'd be more money in the bag, so that there'd be more in the bag for him to reach his hand into and stick into his own pocket. Because that's what Judas had been doing for that whole entire time. Well, with this habitual sin and addictive sin that Judas had, do you think this had any bearing on the ultimate betrayal that he, that he caused with Jesus and put on Jesus? Well, what was it that he ended up betraying Jesus for? Matthew 26, verse 15, and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. You see, Judas didn't just betray Jesus willy-nilly, just out of the air. Judas had a problem, a sin problem. He was a thief. He liked money. And he was stealing money consistently for three years out of the bag of money that the disciples had with them. And then that's the same problem that caused him to betray the Savior. Because he wanted more money. And he was greedy. And so he betrayed the Son of God for that. Now you can look at the motivation of Judas and that's an interesting conversation. Because it may have been that Judas has watched Jesus perform these miracles for three years and get out of tough spots for three years. And he goes, look, I can make 30 pieces of silver real quick and Jesus isn't going to be caught. You know, they're not going to actually take him. I've seen what Jesus can do. Ultimately, though, Judas played right into Jesus's and God's plan for Jesus to be taken and ultimately to give his life for us. But Judas betrayed him with the same sin that he had been addicted to that entire time. 
Second Peter 2, 18 and 19 says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And I want us to recognize once again this morning that sin enslaves. And you may be here and you may have an addictive sin problem. Maybe it's not greed. Maybe it's not the love of money. Maybe it's one of these other things that we've mentioned, but it really doesn't matter. Whatever the sin is, there is consequences for sin and there is a problem and consequences in our life for staying on that path of sin. But there are ways that the scriptures have have told us that we can help ourselves to overcome that and that God will help us to overcome those sins. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if that's a path that you're on, that you're stuck in the cycle of sin that you can't seem to get out of, that there is hope and there is a way to get past some of those things. God has called us to deny the sin within us. Romans chapter 6 verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And just like becoming a slave to sin, that's exactly what we allow sin to do over us. is to reign over us. It becomes our king. It becomes our master. We become its puppet where we get up every day thinking that we're going to be better and we're going to live righteously and we're going to be the Christian that we should be. And yet we find ourselves falling flat on our face again in that sin because we have become the puppet of our master, which is sin. And this scripture tells us to not let sin reign in our mortal body, but to do what? But yield ourselves unto God. To yield ourselves unto God. And this takes work. This takes a conscious choice to instead of allowing sin to reign, to truly allow God and Christ to reign and to be our master. And instead of being the puppet of sin, that we be more or less the puppet of Christ. Not in the sense that he controls us, but that we of our free will give ourselves over to Christ and to God to truly live that kind of a life that he's called us to. And the first thing that we have to do is we have to change the path that we're on. And we have to avoid those sinful paths that can take us. Just like that young man who walked the path to her corner. He walked the way to her house and then found himself in that temptation that was too strong to resist. So many times we put ourselves in the situation that causes us to sin in in the first place. And if we just avoid that path altogether, we could save ourselves a lot of time and a lot of heartache. There's a story in Acts chapter 19, verse 18, that says, Also, many of those that were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This story here illustrates new Christians that have come into the church. And what did they do? They wanted to avoid the opportunity to go back to sin. They wanted to burn the bridges to their past, to their past sinful life. And so these were new Christians that had been practiced in the magical arts, it said. Sorcery. Maybe they used pharmaceuticals, you know, to change people's perspective and to to make it look like they had a supernatural power. Maybe it was witchcraft and it was other. It could have been any of those any of those things. But they had these books probably with. Uh, with different ingredients and things that you could put together using those pharmaceuticals. They had these books of sorcery or of witchcraft that they brought, and that was the life that they used to live, and they brought it all together. And the value of all of these books together came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I have no idea what that equates to today, but I know that Judas betrayed Jesus for how many pieces of silver? 30. And these books were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And what did these new Christians do? They piled all of these sinful books together and they burned them. 
They burned them in the sight of everybody. What were they doing when they burned those books? They were showing commitment. They were showing that we are Christians now and we are going to be Christians in the future and we're not ever going back to our old life. Even if things get tough, even if things get hard, even if we want to quit, we're not going to give ourselves the opportunity to because the books are gone. They're not on our shelf sitting there waiting for us to get tired of this Christianity thing to where we can go back and pull those books off and continue our old life. They said, no, we're burning the bridges to our past. And we're going to burn these books. And we're going to say we're 100% committed to Christ. There's a story, and I hope you didn't uh, hear this story last week because I know my uncle uses this as an illustration also in a sermon, so hopefully you didn't. But there's a man by the name of Hernan Cortez, and he was a Spanish conquistador that lived basically in the 1500s. And there had been a few Spanish uh, conquerors or conquistadors that had gone to present-day Mexico, and they had tried to take over the Aztec Empire, tried to steal jewels and defeat this people and all that, and they had failed over and over. The Aztecs were a strong people. But Cortez decided that he was going to do what no Spanish conquistador had been able to do before. And so he brought 11 ships, and he had 600 soldiers, And they landed on the shores of modern-day Mexico. And Cortez and all his men got out of those boats. And they went and stood on the beach. And they're about to embark on this journey to attack and try to conquer the Aztecs and take their gold and silver and jewels and all of that. And Cortez turned around to his men and he said three words that have lived in infamy ever since. He said, burn the ships. And you know if you're a soldier sitting there that's with Cortez, you're scratching your ear going, wait, hold on. I didn't hear you quite right. What did you say? burn the ships but sir that's our only way back you know we we get beaten and and we're running those ships they can take us back to spain burn the ships and they did just that and those 11 ships were no more and cortez and those 600 what were they saying and what was cortez wanting his men to understand about that mission we're going to do this or we're going to die trying What were the new Christians in Acts 19 saying? We're going to do this. Or we're going to die trying, but we're not going back. Cortez said, we're not going back home. And did you know Cortez was successful in his quest? Probably in large part due to his men knowing that there was no recourse. There was no going back home. We have to do this or die trying. But you know, that's really the kind of commitment that God is asking from us. We're going to do this. Or we're going to die trying, but we're not going back. We're not going back to sin. We're not going back to that old life. We're not going to keep those doors open to our past that helped us to live in sin. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You know, maybe some of those bridges to the past are people. And this is never a comfortable subject to talk about because it's hard to talk about having to cut off relationships with people. People that maybe we've developed relationships or friendships with. But the fact of the matter is, there may be people in your life that really only bring you down. There may be people in your life that make it easy for you to fall, that make it easy for you to sin. There may be people that you care about and maybe your intentions are good and you want to show Christ to them and you want to make them better and to improve them and all of that. But every time that you're around them or you're with them, they bring you down to their level. And, and bring you back to that situation where you're living in that old sinful life. Sometimes those relationships have to be cut off. And it's not an easy thing to do. It's not a comfortable thing to say. But for our own spiritual life and the welfare of our eternal soul, sometimes it's important 
to look at the relationships that we have and say, are these relationships helping me to be a Christian or are they hurting me in being a Christian? Are they helping me get to heaven or are they hurting me in getting to heaven? And there are legitimate cases. How would we ever save anybody if we never had any relationships with anybody? I'm not saying we, we can't have a relationship with somebody outside of Christ. That's not the point. But if we have a relationship with somebody and they are bringing us down and they are causing us to sin, they are encouraging us to go against our Christian principles, then that's a situation that we've got to stop. And we've got to say, either have a serious conversation with them and say, I can't be around you if you're going to continue to to encourage me to do this. Or sometimes it may mean going, I can't be friends with you anymore. I love you. I care about you. And if you want to do right, my door is always open. But I can't spend time with you anymore because it's causing me to compromise my spiritual life. We've got to put that first. And if we're, our good morals are being corrupted by the relationships around us, sometimes we've got to do the hard thing. Jesus talks about the hard thing in Matthew 18, 8. He says, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast in everlasting fire. You know, it'd be a pretty terrible thing to actually have to chop our hand off or our foot off. That'd be awful. But Jesus says, essentially, that's how far we should be willing to go. To stop and to overcome sin and to live the righteous life that he's asked us to. So maybe that's relationships. Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's situations that you put yourselves in. Maybe it's places that you go. Maybe in your old life before you came to Christ, you had a problem with alcohol. And you were an alcoholic. You know the last place that you need to be today as a Christian is in a place with alcohol that's going to tempt you to go down to that, that bad path. But you know where sometimes we go because of human nature and because of the habits that we've developed? Even if we say, well, I'm just going to go and I'm not going to drink. I'm going to go, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to participate in that, but I'll just go. What are we doing when we do that? We're making provision for the flesh. We're putting ourselves in a situation that makes it easy for us to sin. It makes it easy for Satan to tempt us. The passage in Romans chapter 13, 13 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's making provision for the flesh. That means to put ourselves in a situation or around people that makes it easy for us to sin. That's what the young man in Proverbs chapter 7 did. He made provision for the flesh. He walked to that path that led to the corner that the harlot was standing on. And once he was there, the temptation was too strong and he gave in. If we put ourselves back in situations that we used to have problems in, that we used to sin in, or around people that we used to commit sin with and do ungodly things with, and we put ourselves back in that situation, we're just asking to fail. We're asking to fail. This may be another situation, you know, that's a personal thing. Say there's a problem with pornography that, that we have. And that's an addictive problem that we've got. You know the last place that you need a computer or a tablet or a smartphone or any other device that can connect to the internet? You know the last place you need that? Alone with you. Alone with you in your bedroom. Alone with you where you can commit that sin. You need to stop making provision for the flesh. You need to remove those obstacles. You need to do everything that you can do to change the situation first. So that when you're sitting there at night and you're all alone, you don't have access to that anyway, even if you wanted to sin. So that when you really have that urge to take a drink, 
You're not at a bar with other people who are drinking. You need to put yourselves in better situations in the first place so that you're not a young man who's tempted by sexual things who's standing on a corner next to a harlot and then gives in. Make not provision for the flesh. That's up to you. You know your weaknesses. You know your temptations. And you know where you can do better. So do better. Don't make it easy to sin. Ephesians 5.15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Circumspectly there means to look all around you. To pay attention to what it is that you're doing and where it is that you're going. Maybe the young man in Proverbs 7 didn't intentionally put himself there. Maybe he didn't realize that was where her her house was and that was what was going to be waiting for him on that corner. Maybe he didn't know. You know, if he had been watching and he had been paying attention to what was around him, he should have been able to see her far enough off to cross the street and go a different direction and to walk a different path. And if we pay attention to the things that are around us, we can avoid temptations. We can avoid situations that make it easy to sin. And I want to encourage you to run from temptation. You know, this is a very simple um, way to, to help us to overcome temptation and sin. And it's very effective if we'll actually carry it out. The problem is, if we put ourselves in a situation where we're in the midst of a strong temptation, one of the last things we naturally want to do is run. But that's exactly what we've got to choose to do, is to run. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. This passage tells us, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Did you know that there's no temptation that you can face that you can't overcome? That's God's promise. Well, sometimes we feel like there is, though. We feel like we're too deep in it. It's too strong. There's nothing we can do. We can't get out of it. But God has promised us that we can. But you know, that way of escape, we might have already passed it a long time ago by the time we're in the midst of the strong temptation. Maybe the way of escape was paying attention to what was around us and never going there in the first place. Maybe the way of escape was crossing the street and going down a different path where we didn't cross the corner of the harlot standing there. Maybe the way of escape was burning bridges to the past, was not making provision for the flesh. Maybe the way of escape is to run. You know, there's a story in Genesis chapter 39. You remember the story of Joseph. Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, ends up a slave in Egypt at a man named Potiphar's house. And Potiphar had a wife who kind of took a liking to Joseph. And Joseph had, of course, spurned her advances many times. Well, finally, she gets an opportunity where Joseph is the only one in the house and they're alone together. In verse 39 and verse, or chapter 39, verse 11, it says, It came to pass about this time that Joseph went in the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. She found a situation there where she and him were alone in the house, and she took that opportunity to tempt him to try to commit sin with her. You know what he, his reaction to that temptation was? Run. Get out of there as fast as possible. And he ran so fast that she had his coat in her hand and he didn't care about the coat. He took off and he left because he needed to remove himself from that situation. Now, you know the rest of the story. Joseph still got accused, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, ends up in prison. A lot of other things happened to Joseph, but Joseph wasn't going to compromise who God wanted him to be. So much so that when he found himself in a temptation, he ran. And you know, it may not be physically running that that how is how we can carry that out, but maybe it's it's changing 
the situation that we're in. It's removing or changing the circumstances around us. As soon as we recognize that we're in a place where, you know what, that's going to be a temptation to me. You know what, if I'm around this group or I go over here to this place or whatever, it could cause me to stumble. As soon as we become aware of that, we change direction and we run. If we find ourselves face-to-face with temptation or peer pressure or somebody that's trying to get us to do something, we need to remove ourselves from the situation and run. That's what Joseph did. And that's what God is calling us to do. We've got to burn the bridges to the past. We've got to not make it easy on ourselves to sin. And we've got to run when we face those temptations. And then the last thing that I want to mention about avoiding these paths is to use accountability. We have Christian brothers and sisters for a reason. They can help us. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is a command to confess our faults one to another. Yet this is a command that I think that we don't follow nearly as often as we should. And it's because of guilt or it's because of shame or it's because I don't want you to know what it is that I've done. I don't want somebody else to to be privy to that private sinful information that I know about myself. But the fact of the matter is, part of God's plan for helping us to get past sin is confessing that sin. And that's an important step towards really changing. Because if we never confess it, and we never openly acknowledge it to somebody else, and we keep it inside, that's exactly what Satan wants. Because then nobody is asking us, nobody is studying with us, nobody is helping us, nobody is keeping us accountable because they don't know. But if we'll find somebody spiritual that we trust to confess our faults to, elders in a congregation, somebody that's mature in Christ that can help you, that you can confess that sin to, then they can check in on you and they can ask you how it's going. And they can send you a verse or they can study with you. They can help you or they can you can call them if you're in a situation where you're about to fall into that same trap again. And you can call them because they know and they're willing to help you. Accountability is an important part of overcoming sin. But if we keep our sin hidden, that's exactly what Satan would like us to do. Because it makes it easy for us to continue to sin. I want to encourage you to do what James 5.16 has commanded us to do. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Confess your faults one to another. That's how we can help ourselves to get past these things. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I want to encourage you, though, when you're picking somebody to confess your faults to, to pick somebody spiritual. Generally, that's going to be the elders of your congregation. Or somebody that's mature in Christ, that has the ability to, to be respectful and honoring of what it is that you're telling them. Not somebody that's going to go spread it to somebody else or not be faithful in in keeping their part of keeping you accountable. If a spiritual person restores someone, they've they've helped to save a soul or bring them back. You know, there's a story in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul actually held Peter accountable. This is something that was practiced even by the apostles themselves. There was a situation where Peter was eating and he was eating with groups of people. And at the moment, he was eating with a group of Gentiles. And the Gentiles were pretty new into the church, into the kingdom, right? And there was still a stigma between the Gentiles and the Jews. And the Jews didn't really like the Gentiles and all that. And so Peter's there eating with the Gentiles and all of a sudden a group of Jews show up. And what does Peter do when the Jews show up? he kind of gets up from the seat where he was with the Gentiles and he meanders over there to the Jews as if to say, I wasn't associating with the Gentiles. 
I'm associating with the Jews. You know, I'm just like you guys. I'm not over there with those dirty Gentiles. Well, Paul sees what happens. And Paul goes and he, he says, the scripture says he withstands Peter to the face. It says, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So when Paul saw that Peter had gone over with the Jews as if to say, I'm not associated with the Gentiles, Paul got up in Peter's face and said, stop it. That's wrong. Jews and Gentiles are alike are welcome in the kingdom. And you can't show preference to the Jews. Christ has invited everybody into his church, into his kingdom. You can't do that. Paul was holding Peter accountable to what Peter knew was right. We can hold each other accountable just like that. In a loving way. But if we really love and care about each other, we can go to somebody that we know has fallen into the trap of sin and we can go to him and we can say, stop it. You got to stop. This isn't right. You need to come back. You need to change. That's what God is asking us to do. Confess our faults one to another. Hold each other accountable. And when we use accountability, there's a few things that I just want to mention to you that I think are, are important. Use wisdom in choosing the accountability partner. I already mentioned that. Pick somebody spiritual. Pick the elders of your church or somebody mature in Christ. Be humble and honest about your, your faults and your temptation. It does not help to ask somebody to hold you accountable if you're not honest with them about what your sin problems really are. You need to be honest and humble about those things. Study, converse, pray about those things with that accountability partner often. Get together. Have breakfast together occasionally. Whatever it takes to study together, to pray together, to keep that relationship and that accountability going. If somebody has asked you to be an accountability partner for them, be faithful in keeping private conversations private. That's not the kind of stuff you go talk to somebody else about. That's a private conversation. Somebody that's humbled themselves and that really wants to get better and change. And you've got to keep those things private and be faithful with that. Be diligent to follow through with the spiritual guidance that's given. You know, it's not enough just to have an accountability partner and then they study with you and they go, here's some things that will really help you. And you go, okay, thanks. And then walk away and never do any of it. That's not going to help. But if you've got somebody holding you accountable and they say, here's some suggestions to help you to overcome this and get past this, then implement it. Do it. Put it into practice. And live by that spiritual guidance. And quickly this morning, before we close, I want to talk about the last factor in this overcoming sin issue. And of course, there's a lot of directions we can go with this topic. But I think when we talk about choosing a new path, we've got to avoid the old sinful paths by burning the bridges to the past, not making it easy to sin, running from temptation, using accountability. All those things are going to help us avoid sin. But then we've got to replace the part of ourselves that that sin held captive, that that sin took in our heart and our mind, And we've got to replace that with good things, with righteous things. We've got to replace that with good deeds and good works and study and all those things. Or else we're going to have an empty place that's not being filled by God that in turn is going to make us turn back to sin to fill it. And we've got to fill ourselves with God and with righteous and spiritual things in order to really stay on that righteous path. Matthew 13, 43 through 45 says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. He saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also to this wicked generation. You know, Jesus is talking here about an evil spirit that gets, gets cast out of a man. And if 
what that's the, the place that that evil spirit was taking within that person, if it's not replaced by something else, if that spirit comes back and still finds that man empty, the spirit's going to come right back in. And in fact, he's going to bring seven of his worst spirit buddies to come live with him inside that man. It's going to be worse. And you know, in a lot of ways, I think we can apply this to the way sin works. If we remove sin and we try really hard to stop sinning, but we don't replace what that sin was for us in life, the the time and the effort and the energy that that sin took from us, if we don't replace that with good things, then eventually that sin's going to come right back and fill that same hole. And we've got to replace that with good, righteous things. Ephesians 4 verse 22 says to put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And so this concept of putting off and putting on is an important one in Scripture. And I want to encourage you not to just avoid sinful paths and work on not sinning, but also to put on the things of God and the righteousness of Him. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the, sp- of the flesh. You know what Paul tells us in this passage is the key to not sinning, to not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh? Walking in the Spirit. He says, if you will walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, how do we walk in the Spirit? What does that even mean? I mean, we've been given the Spirit, right? Through our, through our baptism, our salvation. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, is that what that's talking about? Is it talking about the fruits of the Spirit? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, I want you to think about the Scriptures. I want you to think about how the Spirit works with us and teaches us. And a lot of that comes through the Scriptures. Those men that were inspired to write the scriptures were inspired by the Spirit. The words that we have before us in the scriptures are Spirit-based. They're Spirit-inspired. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And so if we're going to walk in the Spirit, we need to know the things that the Spirit wants us to learn and to know. And we're only going to know that if we study Scripture and if we learn the things that the Spirit wants us to do. And I want to encourage you in just a few areas. And these are very basic things that you already know. But if we really will carry these things out, I believe that we will be walking in the Spirit. And if we're truly walking in the Spirit, we're not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. The first of those is to make study a priority. To truly care about what the Bible says and apply it to your life. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You need to know how to handle the Word of God. You need to know how to apply the Word of God. You need to know what the Word of God says. Most of the time, if we have bad sin problems and addictive, habitual sin issues, we're not studying like we need to be. Most of the time, though, if we can commit ourselves to study, every day we're studying the Word of God. You know, when we're reading this, what the words that the Spirit has inspired these men to write, and we're learning those things from God's Word, you know what we're not thinking about? Sin. You know what we're not doing when we're reading the Bible? Committing sin. You know, it's really hard to do both at the same time. Unless you've got a really evil heart where you can read God's word at the same time committing sin. That's really hard to do. And if you'll study and you'll make a commitment to study the word of God, it's going to help you to think spiritually. It's going to help you to have the spiritual knowledge and to be spending time in God's word. Make worship a priority. John 4, verse 23, Jesus said, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. And the same concept is true with worship. If there's a service Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or Wednesday night or a gospel meeting that's going on, you ought to try to be there. 
You need to be there. You know why? Because do you commit the sins that you, you know, that you're stuck in, those habitual sins? Do you ever commit those at church? Do you do those here when you're with your brothers and sisters? Hopefully not. The obvious answer hopefully should be no. We don't commit those things. We commit those things in private when we think nobody sees us, when we think nobody's watching, because we don't want people to know those things that we do. Satan's got a hold of us, but he likes privacy. He likes darkness. If we're in the light around other people of the light, we're not going to be committing those things. So if you make worship a priority, if, you're, if, if you make the commitment that I'm going to be here, if the church doors are open, I'm going to be here. You know what you're not doing? You're not giving into the flesh. You're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. In fact, you're walking in the spirit because you're making spiritual things a priority in your life. But not just study, not just worship, but fellowship. You know, there's other opportunities to fellowship other than just at church. You know, our church family, we can get together through the week. We can have people over. We can go to other people's houses. We can have a park day. We can have a fellowship time together. We can do all sorts of stuff to spend time together. Fellowship is just time that we spend with one another. Acts 2 verse 46, talking about those Christians that were uh, baptized there on the day of Pentecost. It says, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Did you know that every day those new Christians in Acts chapter 2 were together? Every day they saw each other. Every day they encouraged each other. Every day they exhorted each other. And you and I can look at that and we can go, yeah, but we have jobs and we have this and we have that and we can't see each other every day. Well, maybe we can't see each other every day. But we do have phones. We can call. We can text. We can do other things to stay in contact and connect. And we can get together more often probably than we do. Christian fellowship is very important. Because you know what you're not doing when you're fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters? When you're out to eat with other Christians? When you've got other Christians in your home? You know what you're not doing? You're not committing sin. You're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. In fact, you're thinking spiritually. And you've trained your mind to instead of think about physical things, to think about spiritual things. And you've got a committed study every day. You're studying scripture. You're there every time the church doors are open. You have other Christians in your home and you go to other Christians' homes. And you're suddenly filling up a lot of your time with spiritually based things. But you know, that's not all God's called us to do. Make good works a priority. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Do you do good works for other people? Do you do good things for others? Do you see an opportunity where somebody needs help and you jump at the chance to go help them? You know, when you're opening your eyes to the needs of others and you're seeing other people as, as people that are opportunities for help, you're training your mind to think spiritually. You're seeing souls instead of people. And when you start to think about people as souls, people that need Jesus, people that need help, people that you can be a spiritual minister to, you know what you're not doing? You're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And you're training your mind to think spiritually. And if you're studying your scriptures every day and you're here every time the church doors are open and you've got Christians in your home through the week and you're in fellowshipping with other Christians and you're seeking opportunities to do good works and minister to other people, you're suddenly filling up your time with a lot of spiritually based things. And that leaves very little time for the sin that easily besets us. Finally, we can make evangelism a priority. Romans chapter 10 verse 15 says, How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. How often do you teach Jesus to somebody? 
How often do you share Jesus with your neighbors, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your acquaintances? Do you do that? Do you think about other people as souls that need saving? Because, you know, if you go through your day and everybody that you meet and everybody that you come in contact with and everybody that you work with, if you think about them as a soul that needs Jesus, you're training your mind to think spiritually and you're walking in the Spirit. And if your mind is trained throughout every day to see people as souls that need Jesus, you know what you're not doing? You're not allowing your mind to go into the gutter of sin. You're not allowing yourself to be placed in a situation that's easy to sin because you're too busy. You know, honestly, the Christian life ought to be a busy life. And if you're studying your scripture every day, and if you're here every time the church doors are open, and if you've got Christians in your home and you're going to other Christians' home and you're fellowshipping with them, and you're seeking opportunities to minister to others and to do good works for people, and you're looking at everybody that you come in contact with as a soul that needs Jesus, and how can I share Jesus with that person? You know what you're doing when you incorporate all of those things into your life? You're walking in the Spirit. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 5, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh because we've trained our mind to think spiritually. And if we train our mind to think spiritually in all these areas, we're not going to have the time, the energy, or quite frankly, the desire to turn back to the old sinful things. And that's how we overcome sin. That's how we truly change is we incorporate the spiritual things that the Scripture is is teaching us. And none of those things should be revolutionary to you. None of those things should be, oh, aha, I never knew that. Never knew we should be at church. Never knew we should share Jesus. All of these things are basic things. But they're basic things that I'm afraid a lot of times we don't really incorporate like we should. And sometimes that's because we've trained ourselves to think physically. And we've trained ourselves to continue to sin. And we're walking down a sinful path that we need to get off of. And I want to encourage you this morning to change. You can change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Acts 3 and verse 19 says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're living in sin, if you're walking a path, maybe it's of poor judgment, maybe it's of casual sin, maybe it's of habitual or addictive sin, whatever level of sin that you may be involved in, or that whatever path you may be on this morning, I want to encourage you to do what this verse is telling you to do. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The last verse that I want to read this morning is Psalm 40 and verse 12. And this verse really stuck out to me because of the passion that I think that you can, that you can feel and the power that I think is in this verse that David writes when he says, For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. David said, I have, my iniquities have gotten so strong and so deep that I dare not even look up to heaven. I can't even lift up my eyes because of my shame and my guilt. I can't even lift my head up. I can't bear to even look towards Jesus or look towards God because my iniquities have taken such a stronghold upon me. And you may be here this morning, and your iniquities may have a hold on you. Your sin may have grasped you. Satan may have his tentacles in you. You may be a slave to sin this morning, but God has promised you and told you that you can be made new, and you can change if you'll apply the principles that He teaches you in Scripture, if you walk in the Spirit and don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So maybe you're here this morning, and like David, you feel like you can't even lift your eyes up 
because of the shame and the guilt. God can take that shame and guilt away and you can change the path that you're on. And if we can help you to do that, either through obedience to the gospel this morning or through the prayers of the church, we invite you to come forward as we sing the invitation song.